This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS News Face the Nation in 60 seconds. Are you looking to hit your fitness goals? Let Beachbody On Demand help you get there. No need to go to a gym or schedule a class. Everything is right there on your personal device. They have programs for any fitness level, and the workouts range from cardio to weight training to yoga, low impact, and even dance. There are over 600 different workouts on the platform. Beachbody On Demand even provides comprehensive nutrition plans to help you meet your goals because working out is just part of the equation. Access to information on meal prep, variety of recipes, and simple but proven eating plans. You need to give this service a try. Right now, listeners can get a free trial membership when you text FTN to 303030. You will get full access to this entire platform for free. All the workouts and nutrition information free. Just text FTN to 303030. Text FTN to 303030. Today on Face the Nation... President Trump declassifies a secret congressional memo that he says clears him in the Russia investigation. But the FBI warns the release has damaged national security. The Republican memo accuses the FBI of abusing their powers to spy on a Trump campaign advisor suspected of being a Russian agent. Democrats cry foul and claim the memo is an attempt to discredit special counsel Robert Mueller's ongoing probe. A lot of people should be ashamed of themselves, and much worse than that. Does he still have confidence in his own Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, who helped sign off on the requests? You figure that one out. We sat down with the only Republican on the House Intelligence Committee who has seen all of the classified documents used in the memo, South Carolina's Trey Gowdy. He'll walk us through the complicated story that got Washington's full attention. And there is breaking news as well this morning as an Amtrak passenger train collides with a freight train in South Carolina. We'll have the very latest. We'll have plenty of analysis on the national security implications of the memo. And as always, our political panel weighs in on the news of the week. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. We begin this morning with some breaking news. Overnight, an Amtrak passenger train collided with a CSX freight train just outside of Columbia, South Carolina. CBS News transportation correspondent Chris Van Cleve is in our newsroom. Chris, good morning. Margaret, good morning. The Amtrak train was heading south from New York, bound for Miami. Went around 2.30 this morning. It collided with that freight train. At least two people are dead. And authorities are reporting 116 patients, including at least two children, 
were brought to the hospital for treatment. Now, initial reports are most of the injuries are not life-threatening, ranging from cuts and bruises to broken bones. But the hospitals told us they expect at least two patients will be admitted. Amtrak says there were eight crew and approximately 139 passengers on board train 91. Pictures and video from the scene show the lead locomotive and some of the train cars have derailed. The National Transportation Safety Board is sending a GO team to investigate. This is the latest in a string of deadly Amtrak accidents. Now, you're likely to hear a lot of talk about positive train control in the coming days. It's technology designed to prevent these types of accidents, but the deadline to have it installed is the end of the year. Margaret? Chris, thank you. The news cycle in Washington has been dominated this week by a four-page memo written by Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee asserting that the FBI concealed that it had used anti-Trump research funded by Democrats when it obtained a secret warrant from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance, or FISA court, to monitor a Trump campaign associate named Carter Page. He had already been on the FBI's radar due to past contact with Russian operatives. The anti-Trump research, also called the Steele dossier, was originally put together by a former British spy named Christopher Steele. The Republican memo also confirmed that the FBI investigation had begun in the summer of 2016 based on information about another Trump campaign associate named George Papadopoulos. He has since pled guilty and is cooperating with the probe led by special counsel Robert Mueller. Saturday, President Trump tweeted that the memo, quote, totally vindicated Trump in the Russia probe. We sat down earlier with South Carolina Congressman Trey Gowdy, a key House intelligence investigator, and asked him if he thought the president had been vindicated. I actually don't think it has any impact on the Russia probe for this reason. The memo has no impact on the Russia probe. Not, not, not to me it doesn't, and I was pretty integrally involved in the drafting of it. Uh, There is a Russia investigation without a dossier. So to the extent the memo deals with the dossier and the FISA process, the dossier has nothing to do with the meeting at Trump Tower. The dossier has nothing to do with an email sent by Cambridge Analytica. The dossier really has nothing to do with George Papadopoulos' meeting in Great Britain. Um, It also doesn't have anything to do with obstruction of justice. So there's going to be a Russia probe even without a dossier. Speaker Ryan says that the memo that you helped put together here does not threaten the credibility of the FBI. The president has very different views and says it does. Where do you stand? I don't think there's a bigger supporter of the FBI in Congress um, than me and those of us who work with him in a previous life. Um, I have tremendous respect for the Bureau. There are 30,000 employees. Um, Let's assume that there are five that uh, engaged in conduct that we have questions about. Five. That leaves a lot. That that leaves a lot that are doing exactly what we want them to do. Are these five individuals named in the memo that you helped publish? I think two of them would be. Um, People can quibble about Andy McCabe. Um, I spent, I guess, close to 15 hours with Andy McCabe in two different interview sections. I found him to be a professional witness, even though I disagree with some of the decisions he made. And I think we got to get to the some point in life where you can disagree with the decision-making process that someone engaged in without believing that they are corrupt or somehow uh, part of the deep state, whatever that means. This is the the deputy director of the FBI who now is retiring. Yes, Yes. Uh, being asked to leave perhaps earlier than he had planned. But when it comes to the, the Department of Justice and the FBI now that the president is raising questions about, these individuals were handpicked by 
by him, uh, and he's critical of them. Do you think that there need to be changes there? Um, I think the folks that he picked, Chris Ray and Rod Rosenstein, can effectuate those changes. Uh, Rod Rosenstein is a former United States attorney. And again, I, I have differences with the way that they discharge their responsibilities. But there's, there's, a, there's a wide gulf between me having differences from somebody and think that they should lose their job. I, I'm really impressed with Chris Ray. Um, to Chris's defense, he didn't want the memo to come out. He's speaking up for his agency. But Congress is the one who created FISA. In fact, Congress created the FBI. So there's going to be good, good branch tension. Um, it doesn't mean someone should lose their job. It doesn't mean they're corrupt. But it also doesn't mean Congress is not legitimate in asking these questions, because I think we are. Rod Rosenstein, the, the deputy attorney general that you referenced there, is also publicly disclosed in this memo as someone who helped sign off on this surveillance warrant. Do you have confidence in him? Should he keep his job? I have confidence in him. Um, I, I didn't the president the, wavered on that. When I didn't he get was to pick him. Um, and the president, I've actually never met President Trump, never had a conversation with him, and he certainly should not ask my hiring advice. I've had my differences with Rod Rosenstein, um, and I still think that he is fully capable of, of helping run a Justice Department that we can all have confidence in. I'm actually really impressed with Chris Ray. And I say that um, even though we are on totally opposite sides of this issue and, and probably will always be. He doesn't think the memo should have should have been publicly disseminated. Um, I have real questions about the process that the bureau went through in 2016. Um, but I also think he's the person to, to, to lead the bureau. I think he's doing a good job. Well, the FBI was gravely concerned that there was information missing from this memo, that it actually uh, was dangerous in setting a precedent in terms of disclosing classified information, and it could actually hurt future intelligence efforts. How do you respond to that and to Chris Ray? Um, difficult facts make for really bad precedent. Um, I hope this is a one-off. I hope it is a one-off that Congress takes this Position, but I also hope it's a one-off that a FISA application contains um, errors and and uh, and product that is funded by a political opponent. I hope that's a one-off. So that's the steel dossier that you are pointing to there. But 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 it, it's both the steel dossier and who paid for it and whether or not it was vetted. But it's also what was not in. This is an application to a court. So. I get that Adam Schiff and others are worried about what's not in my memo. Mm -hmm. I wish that they were equally concerned about what's not in the FISA application, which is a lot of really important information about the source and his subsources um, and the fact that he was hired by the DNC and the, and the Clinton campaign and the fact that he was biased against President Trump. That is all information that the, that the finder of fact is entitled to. Now, we should dig into this because you are, from my understanding, the only Republican investigator on the House Intelligence Committee who actually viewed the FISA applications, everything that went into essentially putting together this memo. So w when you're talking about this Steele memo, you are not saying that it was the sole piece of evidence used to justify these four authorizations of the surveillance warrant, are you? No. Um, it was not the exclusive information relied upon by, uh, by the FISA court. Would it, it have in, been authorized were it not for that dossier? No, it would not have been. Um, and, How and, can you say that? Because it was authorized four times by separate judges. Right, right? and the information was in there all four times. Mm -hmm. uh, and the judge doesn't do independent research. There are three Republicans that have seen every bit of information, three of us. Bob Goodlatte, the chairman of the judiciary, mm -hmm. Johnny Radcliffe, who was a former terrorism prosecutor and U.S. attorney in Texas, and me. All three of us have total confidence 
and the FBI and DOJ to be able to do the jobs that they have been assigned. We have confidence in Bob Mueller, and we have serious consideration, serious concerns about this process. So we have all three of those things in common, including being concerned about what what happened in 2016. Should all the information in the FISA applications be publicly disclosed, declassified, so that people can make their own judgment and see what you've seen? Um, I I think um, I'm going to defer a little bit to the Bureau and DOJ on um, it's a long application. If there are sources and methods that are are not already known Mm -hmm. that they think would jeopardize national security, I would um, I would defer to their judgment. The source that we revealed, uh, Chris Steele, was about the least well-kept secret in America. Mm-hmm. So I, I, generally, I, I err on the side of transparency and disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's a reason that this process um, is usually confidential. And, uh, and I don't want to set the precedent of all FISA applications being publicly seen. Well, that's a concern in doing this memo, that you have set a new precedent. Um, I, I would argue that it's also um, somewhat unprecedented to rely on political opposition research to um, instruct and um, inform an application. And it's really uh, bad precedent and unprecedented uh, to not tell a court that a source has this level of bias. I mean, look, look at just the disclosure of who paid for it. They could have easily said it was the DNC and, and Hillary Clinton. That would have been really easy. I read the footnote. I, I know exactly what the footnote says. It took longer to explain it the way they did than if they just come right out and said Hillary Clinton for America and DNC paid for it. But so, they didn't do that. But short of that disclosure, you still would have believed this FISA surveillance warrant was justified? I mean, your your problem is in the disclosure within the application, but the surveillance itself of this American Carter Page was named in your memo, uh, who was at one point a Trump campaign associate. Uh, was that justified, that surveillance? Um, we'll never know, um, because the, the application contained three parts. It, became, uh, it uh, included the dossier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it included uh, reference to a newspaper article, which, by the way, no court in America considers a newspaper article to be evidence. And it included other information they had on Carter Page. So what I would say to the FBI and DOJ is if you had enough on Carter Page with just him, why did you include something that the National Enquirer might not run? And why did you cite a newspaper article when there's no court in America that allows a newspaper article to be considered as evidence? If you had enough without it, why did you use it? That would be my question to them. Were the judges political? Four times this was approved. No, I, 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 the judges are only as good as what's put in front of them. Judges don't do independent research. So you're looking at but this a isn't, stack of this paper. This is an extensive process from, right. from what I'm told. I mean, this isn't just something people sign off on quickly. It's you know, a sizable application with, as you said, multi-part information that's submitted. But that's were the judges for, not doing their jobs? No, I think they were. I mean, ju- judges sign Title III applications all the time. They sur- sign search warrants. They sign arrest warrants. Uh, there's a reason the affiant swears to the truthfulness of the underlying information. Judges can't then go research and say, well, gosh, I wonder if Chris Steele knew this all himself, or I wonder if he was relying on hearsay from subsources in Russia. That's not the judge's job. It is the FBI and DOJ's job to present full, credible information to the court. So I don't look if I'll never miss a chance to blame judges if I can, because I was a former litigator. Mm. There's nothing judges can do about information that's not presented to them. 
And the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, if the president makes any move to dismiss him, he failed to express confidence in him the other day, would that concern you? Um, it would. Again, I'm not in the Senate. I don't have advice and consent, uh, and the president has not sought my count. But you don't think this. he should be fired based on what you've seen? I, I, I don't. I, I think um, it is fair to ask uh, the deputy attorney general, um, what did you know at the time you signed one of the applications? I think it is fair to ask, what FISA reforms are you going to uh, implement to make sure we don't have this fact pattern come up again? Um, I don't judge people based on um, a single decision that they make throughout uh, the course of an otherwise really stellar career. I want to ask you about one of the criticisms that's coming from Democrats here, because they, there was a lot of hubbub. Should the memo come out? Should it not? When it did, in reading it, Democrats said that the content actually undercuts some of the argument that you're making here uh, because it confirms that the Russia probe was already underway in advance of these FISA uh, warrant applications, and that it pointed all the way back to uh, July 2016 when George Papadopoulos uh, was named there, a former Trump foreign policy aide who has since pled guilty and is now a cooperating witness in the special counsel's probe. So how do you respond to that, that you've actually hurt your own argument? Well, I'm actually in a really small group, I think, of Republicans uh, that think that this Pfizer process uh, is suspect and wrong and should not have taken place but you still have a Russia investigation even without it. So um, I don't know how many other Republicans feel that way. I, I am on record as saying I support Bob Mueller 100%. I think you would have a Russia... Inve- Look, Russia tried to interfere with our election in 2016 with or without a dossier. So you need an investigation into Russia. You need an investigation into Trump Tower and the Cambridge Analytica email, separate and apart from the dossier. So those are not connected issues to me. They may be for other Republicans, but they're not for me. I say investigate everything Russia did, but admit that this was a really sloppy process that you engaged in to surveil a U.S. citizen. So your concern is a process-driven one, not questioning the probe that the president continues to call a witch hunt, because he is taking this evidence as he's saying, you know, clearing the decks and, and saying that, you know, in the court of public opinion, he should already be decided as not guilty of collusion. Well, I, that, that's a little bit separate issue. Um, I, you know, we're not through with the investigation, so I'm not going to prejudge the outcome of it. Um, I have seen no evidence of collusion between President Trump and the Russians or his campaign in the mm-hmm. Russian. We're not through investigating. But I would ask my fellow citizens, keep these three things uh, disconnected. Bob Mueller is looking into what Russia did in 2016 and potential criminality as evidenced by the Papadopoulos plea and the Flynn plea. Congress is looking into what Russia did in 2016. But, oh, by the way, it's also, you can do that and also be critical Mm -hmm. of the use of the dossier and and the failure to tell the the FISA court um, all relevant material facts. You can do all three, um, and and that's where I am. Uh, Now, your committee, the House Intelligence Committee, has said they have a second memo planned for release, this time about the State Department. What can you tell us about that? Uh, that that's news to me. You didn't have a role in creating this memo. I don't think there is a memo about the State Department. The way I, I but Chairman to, Nunes has said that publicly. I think what I think what Devin said is there's a phase two of the investigation, um, and there is um, uh, we do have concerns with a certain aspect of State Department involvement, um, and um, have serious concerns about it. Uh, it's not been public yet, so I, I I think what Chairman Nunes meant is there's. 
there's another aspect to the investigation. But if there's a second memo, um, I don't know about it. I want to ask you about the other big news of the week that that you made. Uh, You surprised Washington (laughs) with announcing your retirement, that you're not going to run for Congress. Why did you decide to leave? You know, I'm just I I, I enjoy the justice system more. I enjoy being fair. Um, I enjoy the pursuit of fairness uh, as a virtue. And um, I'm just more comfortable in that system. Um, My wife hates it when I say this, but I I was a pretty good prosecutor, I think. uh, But I've been a pretty lousy politician. So I've done it for seven years. Um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do it. But it's time for me to uh, whatever time I got left, I want to spend it in the justice system because that's where my heart is. And um, why do you say you're a lousy politician? I just I, I see Um, multiple sides of a single issue. Um, And the fact that someone disagrees with me um, does not make me challenge uh, their love of the country. It doesn't make me believe that they're corrupt. Um, I've got a lot of friends on the other side of the aisle. We disagree on this issue, but but I don't question their love for the country. And I don't, I, I just... I don't think the end justifies the means. I think the manner in which we get places matters. And in politics, too often, winning is the only thing that matters. And look, every hero I have is lost, every one of them. So losing is not the worst thing in the world. Not knowing what you believe and not caring enough about it to fight for it, that's the worst thing in the world. Do you think you served justice in your time in Congress? Uh, not like I did in my previous job. I tried. Um, it's about winning in politics, and um, that is not what the, the courtroom... There's a reason we throw out search warrants, even though we find the murder weapon. There's mm-hmm. a reason we throw out con- confessions, even though we think the person did it. The process matters. The end does not justify the means. And in politics, it's just about winning. And, and I, I can't... I don't want to live like that. Congressman, thank you for coming yes, ma'am. on thank and you. telling your story. Yes, ma'am. We turn now to a trio of experts to help us understand the impact of the memo's release. Fran Townsend was Homeland Security Advisor to George W. Bush, and she is now a CBS News Senior National Security Analyst. Michael Morell was CIA Deputy Director and is now a CBS News Senior National Security Contributor. And Victoria Newland is a former Assistant Secretary of State. She is now CEO at the Center for a New American Security. Welcome to all of you. This has been a confusing week for many people trying to follow the politics of this. Frank, can you tell us, I mean, is this FISA process as broken as Trey Gowdy describes? And should Americans be afraid they're getting spied on? It's actually a quite robust process with many checks and balances along the way, including internally in the FBI. It goes through multiple legal checks. We ought to talk about the specifics, right? Carter Page, if you wanted to do the surveillance on him, you had to have probable cause that he was an agent of a foreign power, in this case, Russia. You had to have to make out that probable cause. If the Steele dossier was in there, you know, Trey Gowdy acknowledges that there was a footnote. He doesn't like the way it was worded. He doesn't think it was robust enough. But they did caveat that piece of evidence that they were relying on. But let's remember, he had been approached. The FBI was aware in 2013 he had been approached by Russian intelligence agents, and they interviewed him. He had been very public in terms of his criticism of U.S. policy about Russia. Um, he He himself claimed to have been an informal advisor to the Kremlin, There was plenty of information to establish probable cause about the possibility of him being an agent of a foreign power. 
add to that, that initial surveillance was only good for 90 days. Then they, the Justice Department and FBI had to come back to the court, and they had to not only plead that mm -hmm. he was an agent of a foreign power, they had to say that that surveillance was productive in advancing their investigation. Every time they came back to the court, they had a show. It was productive, and they were learning more about his activities vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Mike, was this memo as damaging as some had feared? And if the Democrats released their version, is that also damaging? So I think there's, there, there's kind of two points to set this up, Margaret. The first is that this didn't have to happen right now. The release of this memo did not have to happen. There was nothing that forced it. What should have happened here is that this be part of the final report of the committee with the facts laid out. Here's what the Republicans think. Here's what the Democrats think. That's the way it should have happened, right? That's point one. Point two is there is classified information in this document, in those four pages. Um, Trey Gowdy acknowledged some of it. Right. There is there, there's material in here that the FBI would have removed had they had the opportunity. Put those two points together, you get three damages. The first is it undermines the credibility of the FBI in the public's eyes um, and with no justification in my view. I share all of Fran's views on that point. Two is it undermines the oversight process. How does it under, undermine the oversight process? Mm -hmm. Government agencies are not going to want to share sensitive information with Congress if mm -hmm. they believe that Congress can release it on their own without going through the rejection process. And then the third is it undermines intelligence collection. Because if you're a source of the United States or a foreign government giving us information, you're going to think twice about doing that. Mike, uh, if the Democrats release their memo, will it cause further damage? So when, when sources provide our government with sensitive information or foreign governments provide us with sensitive information, they expect us to protect it. And when they see that information being released, when they see the, see the names of sources in documents being released, it gives them pause about whether they should con continue to do that or not. I think the other really important point here, Margaret, is that what happened here underscores the partisanship and the dysfunction of a very important committee in Congress. And that does not serve Congress well, it doesn't serve the intelligence community, and it doesn't serve the country well. Toria, uh, Congressman uh, Gowdy said they now have concerns about the State Department. You served there until recently. Do you know what he's talking about? I don't. I look forward to, to hearing what he's talking about. I will tell you, though, Margaret, that uh, during the Ukraine crisis in 2014 and 15, uh, Chris Steele had a number of commercial clients who were asking him for reports on what was going on in Russia, what was going on in Ukraine, what was going on between them. Uh, Chris had a friend at the State Department, and he offered us that reporting uh, free so that we could also benefit from it. It was one of, you know, hundreds of sources mm -hmm. that we were using to try to understand what was going on. Uh, then in the middle of July, when he was doing this other work and became concerned... The dossier. The dossier. Uh, he passed uh, two to four pages of short points of what he was finding, and our immediate reaction to that was, this is not in our purview. This needs to go to the FBI if there is any concern here that one candidate or the election as a whole uh, might be influenced by the Russian Federation. That's for the something for the FBI to investigate. Uh, and that was our reaction when we saw this. It's not our... our we can't mm -hmm. evaluate this. Uh, and frankly, if every member of the campaign who the Russians tried to approach and tried to influence had gone to the FBI as well in real time, we not, might not be in the mess we're in today.
When it comes to this memo, Senator John McCain uh, said that it only serves Vladimir Putin's interests. You spent a lot of your career watching Russia. Is he right? He's absolutely right. Uh, this What's most important is that we investigate what happened in the past, but even more importantly, that we work together, the House, the Senate Intelligence Committees, the executive branch, the, our technology companies, to deter future Russian efforts to influence U.S. politics and elections. We should be working on the strategies that will blunt this, expose it. Uh, some of our European partners have done better already than we have at this. Uh, in the French election, the Macron campaign immediately exposed what Russia was doing to their public, to their media, and that sunshine served as a disinfectant and blunted the Russians' ability to influence that election. That's what we should be doing here. And when we fight with each other, when we question our fundamental institutions, that is a great day for Vladimir Putin. Mike, I just want to add. I just want to add one point. Victoria is absolutely right. We have not deterred Putin, and one of the consequences of that is other countries are now getting into this business of weaponizing social media. So the Chinese are now doing this with the Taiwanese. The Turks are now doing this with the Turkish diaspora in Europe. They're trying to influence them. This is going to spread because we have failed to deter Putin. And Fran, there's also this question, which is why I asked you: Should Americans be concerned of? undermining U.S. institutions, a lack of trust now for the FBI. I mean, how do you reassure people? Look, these are career public servants. You know, you may disagree, as Trey Gowdy says, with a particular decision Rod Rosenstein or Andrew McCabe made, but this is these are thousands of people who've devoted decades to public service, to protecting us from this sort of influence, for, to investigating it. And there are multiple legal checks, including, let's remember, these, these packages for the FISA surveillance went to independent Article III judges, not one. This went to the court four times. And the judges do ask questions. It is in secret because the proceedings are classified, as Mike points out. But the judges often ask for additional information, especially in the, in the case where the dossier was footnoted. It would have been drawn to the judge's attention. And so these public servants, what they care about is getting to the bottom and getting the facts. Without, without fear or favor of politics, oftentimes they're, they're legally prohibited from political activity, and none of them engage in it. It really is about the facts of the investigation that drive them to protect the American people. And from your perspective, the fact that Carter Page had been surveilled going all the way back to 2013 was enough to justify use of this dossier in the application? Look, I, I think you can take the dossier, based on what we know, I think you can take the dossier out of it. I disagree with Trey Gowdy. I think they probably had enough to establish probable cause without it. But if you were going to include it, they did the right thing by caveating, caveating it in the footnote, even if Trey Gowdy disagrees with how detailed the footnote was. Victoria, bigger picture, when you look at the Trump administration's policy so far on Russia, it's surprised some that it's been harder line in terms of promising weapons to Ukraine, uh, perhaps more nuclear development in this latest gesture towards countering Russia's nuclear development and breaking some of our treaties. Have you been surprised uh, by their policies so far? I mean, are you seeing any deterrence? 
Uh, well, I think in the first instance, our democracy is working with regard to Russia. You remember that there were, at the beginning of 2017, lots of noises out of the administration about lifting the Ukraine sanctions before we even got into a negotiation and without any leverage. It was the Congress that insisted that they stay in place and be used to try to negotiate the Russians out of Ukraine, which is what they were put on to begin with. Um, yes, I think it's very important that we now have the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, the head of the CIA, the um, uh, Secretary of Defense, all saying uh, that Russia is a real problem and that we need to contain and deter. That's what the national security strategy says. But you it's going to take to say that it's going to take presidential leadership uh, for us to unite this government and create a real strategy, carrots and sticks, to get back on uh, a a better path with Russia. And we ought to be looking at doing that as soon as the Russian elections are over in March. All right. Toria, thank you very much. Mike, Fran, good to talk to you. We'll be right back with our political panel. Don't have time to keep up with the news? Try the CBS News Radio app on your iOS or Android device. You'll get the latest news as soon as you start it up. It's that easy. You can also listen to great programming like Face the Nation, Weekend Roundup, or the CBS Evening News. And good evening. Wall Street today signaled its approval of the tax cuts passed by the Republican-controlled Congress. You can even download them straight to your phone and listen later. It's all on the CBS News Radio app for iOS or Android. Download it today. And we're back with our political panel. Julie Pace is the Washington bureau chief of the Associated Press. Jamel Bowie is chief political correspondent for Slate and a CBS News analyst. Molly Ball is national political correspondent for Time magazine. And Ben Domnich is the founder and publisher of The Federalist. Molly, I want to start off with you. The State of the Union was on Tuesday. Does anyone remember that? Because it seems like this memo has just dominated everything in Washington. It does feel like a lifetime ago, and it's it's a... A real shame for the president and his supporters because the reviews of the State of the Union were quite positive. In fact, there's been a lot of good news for the president outside of this investigation. But I think we have seen that the president in particular, uh, message discipline is not his strong suit. Uh, being quiet about things that it might be advantageous for him not to talk about is not his strong suit. Uh, and it was really the Republicans in Congress that made the memo a thing. Uh, and so they're the ones who uh, put this out there that ended up, you know, being seized on by the president, really overshadowing everything else. Uh, and so I do think the State of the Union was important, uh, and it matters that uh, it was generally seen as, as, as a good performance by the president. Uh, but this herky-jerky news cycle that we've been in for seemingly the past three years uh, just means that nothing makes a lasting impression. Mm. Ben, can the Republicans get the message back? Well, I think in this case, uh, there are two different messages going on. One, uh, I think the country is paying a lot of attention to the economic news that they've had over the course of the past couple of months. It's why you've seen Republicans' advantage in uh, in the election improve compared to where it was in December. Similarly, you know, the president's approval rating has ticked up in a number of different uh, measures, and I think that that's what the American people are generally focused on. I view this memo story as essentially an inside Washington story for the most part, but I do want to circle back to your prior panel because you had a couple of people on there who are willing to defend the intelligence community, hook, line, and sinker. And I think that this is actually some, a story that is just beginning in terms of the consequences of this memo's release. I think you're going to, cons- uh, to see an additional transparency on a number of things. You're going to see additional leaks on a number of fronts. 
And I think that this is only the beginning of a back and forth that is going to result in a lot of questions being raised about a FISA court process that has been frankly controversial for quite some time. But and it was now, just reauthorized. Yes, but I think that's going to come up again in terms of questions that people have about that process and what people knew about what was going on behind it. The fact is that we're talking about, you know, not the whole of the FBI or the intelligence community, obviously. But, you know, 10 years ago, it was funny to see this week, uh, you know, Peter King, who was, you know, has been described by the New York Times as the Patriot Act's number one fan, just, you know, raking James Comey over the coals and, and criticizing the FBI at the same time that Adam Schiff, who 10 years ago was calling for dramatic uh, increases in transparency on the part of FISA uh, on the opposite side of this issue and saying that the release of this memo was incredibly irresponsible. And you see widespread support for that kind of criticism within the Republican Party? I think that things have flipped, uh, just as in so many things in the Trump era. Things have flipped on their head, and you see a lot of people criticizing the FBI who've been its most stalwart defenders. I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. Well, uh that there's a lot to dig in on, too, on that. Apparently, we've got news to continue to tune into. Um, but I want to ask you, Julie, we have a deadline again. Are we going to see a government funding shutdown February 8th? It doesn't feel like there's a, an appetite for a shutdown this week. That being said, uh, Congress, you know, can move fast when it wants to and, and particularly slow uh, when they get into these gridlock moments. I think that you're seeing Democrats who really looked to the last shutdown deadline as an opportunity to push forward on immigration, to try to make a deal on DACA, recognizing that even though their base is energized by that, strategically, they don't have a lot of leverage on Capitol Hill right now to tie these issues together. So I think you're going to see these issues splitting apart again this week. It's possible we just get another short-term spending bill, kick this into March again. You know, this is part of the frustration that you hear from Americans, but also, frankly, from a lot of members right now. They can't even do basic things. We could be heading into another short-term CR. That That is pretty astounding. It has a lot of people frustrated, but it looks like that's where we are this week. Hey, during your interview with Congressman Gowdy, you asked him why he was leaving Congress. And just as a viewer, my immediate thought was it seems like a terrible job. <laughs> um, for, the past, for the past year and a half, uh, it has been difficult to move forward on anything in Congress. It's been difficult to legislate. It's been difficult... To, to accomplish anything. This is a result of, of, of a lot of different factors, but I think the, the overall conclusion you have to draw uh, from what's happened in Congress over the last year or so is that who would want to be there? Who would want to spend years of their life uh, working through this muck? So what does that mean for the more than one and a half million so-called dreamers that the president has now said he'd be willing to give some sort of protection to in a future immigration deal? My hunch, so if you pull back, the administration's immigration policy has been less about sort of mass deportations, which just isn't feasible, but more about kind of creating the fear of deportation for newer and larger groups of undocumented immigrants. And so, uh, you know, pulling back DACA does that, and pulling back temporary protected status does that. And my, you know, in the absence of any sort of deal on immigration, um, my hunch is that the administration will continue forward with this approach, um, essentially allowing DACA recipients to remain in this uh, this limbo state where they are in, in, in they are in threat of being deported. Mm-hmm. Um, and given that the sort of immigration policy drivers within the administration you know, want this, have no problem with this, um, I, I find it hard to imagine that the president will be that broken up if Congress can't come to but a doctor deal. It is creating tremendous uncertainty. You right. have a March 5th deadline, but then also is some that questions stay? about whether that deadline yeah. is hard because of some, some court actions. So you have 
have hundreds of thousands of people right now who are currently in this system, who have received these protections, who have come forward, hundreds of thousands more who do chose not to come forward but could if Congress acted. So part of the reason that this debate, I think, is so fraught is because we're talking about real people's lives. Even Mm -hmm. though it gets tied up in all the politics, there are real people who have lived in this country for quite some time who don't know if they'll be able to stay. One thing that we have seen uh, on the part of Congress widespread support for were sanctions on Russia, and the president didn't act on that this week. Should we stay tuned, or (laughs) are they not coming? It's unclear whether they're coming or not. There is a lot of pressure on this administration to take some tough action on Russia. They have continuously chosen to balk when uh, some of these deadlines have come up. And that's what leads to a lot of the questions around this investigation, when the president often has a chance to, to look tough on Russia, to take some tough actions. He doesn't. I want to ask you, Molly, about some of the some of the noise coming out of the vice president's office these days. He was unusually aggressive, sort of picking a fight with Joe Manchin. Uh, a senator that the administration has tried to work with in the past. He's a Democrat, and they need them these days. What is he trying to do? They ought to. No, I really don't know. And uh, there was quite a bit of befuddlement about why he chose to take that particular shot. Uh, uh, Manchin recently uh, announced that he will run for re-election to the great relief of the Democratic caucus because he is seen as basically the only Democrat who stands any kind of chance at keeping that Senate seat in West Virginia. Uh, And, you know, Pence's strategy for the most part as vice president has been to act presidential, right, to do Mm -hmm. the kinds of uh, very message controlled and uh, ceremonial things uh, that the president often doesn't do uh, and uh, and and to send the signals of of calm and normality uh, that the president often doesn't do. Uh, So it was interesting to see him go out on a on a limb like this. Uh, Normally, the vice president's office is sort of the 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 eye of the storm. Mm -hmm. Ben, when you come and look at the numbers right now, as we're saying, you know, they need a few friendly Democrats. But short of that, they're seeing a lot of Republicans right now leave. Trey Gowdy, just the latest to announce that he's departing. What's going on? And should Democrats actually be heartened by this or what? I, I, think that, I think that Jamel is correct when he says that the simplest explanation is that Congress <laughs> just isn't a very fun place to work these days. Uh, but I think that you're seeing a number of different factors going on there. Uh, part of it is feeling like we've finally gotten into this majority position and we finally have the White House and we're incapable of de- delivering on any of the things that we promised to our constituents. But part of it, too, I think, is just that this political upheaval that we've gone through in the past couple of years is challenging a number of figures who don't really know how to navigate the new scenarios and, frankly, are worried about primary challenges from Mm -hmm. more populist Republicans who might come in and go after them. One of the more interesting developments, frankly, this past week was uh, the, the sort of story thrown out there by those close to Mitch McConnell that one Republican who is coming back, it seems, uh, Mitt Romney, uh, would be uh, potentially a candidate to run the NRSC. This sets up a scenario where, frankly, McConnell's being very smart by putting him in that position. Uh, He's recognizing that Romney is one of the few Republicans, perhaps the only one who could challenge him for leadership uh, should that sort of situation arise. Uh, But it's also kind of a, a story about what we're going to see in the coming years, which is a continued amount of tension between this Congress and the White House on a number of different fronts because of the differences between the political constituencies that backed these different figures. Jamel, are are we getting ahead of ourselves and trying to read ahead to what's happening in 2018? I don't think so. Um, 
it, who it is, wants the job you say stinks? <laughs> Who's actually going to be running? Well, what's clear is that some of the people who want the job are energized Democrats, are an unprecedented number of women uh, candidates, an unprecedented number of, um, of candidates of color who are coming forward to run in places where Democrats have sort of not been running competitively in order to attempt to strike a blow against the Trump administration. And so I think that that story, which is developing and ongoing, is one reason to be have an eye on, on this November um, beyond all the other uh, machinations. It is, if, 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 if those candidates end up succeeding, it will represent a major change in the composition of Congress mm-hmm. and a change in where the energy in the Democratic Party is coming from. All right. Thanks to all of you helping us to handicap what's ahead. And we will be back in a moment. Like what you're hearing? Get even more great content from CBS News Radio podcasts. Listen to TV broadcasts like CBS Evening News and Face the Nation on demand. I'm John Dickerson. And don't miss The Takeout, a politics, policy, and pop culture podcast from CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett. We have our first member of the Trump administration cabinet at our table, Mick Mulvaney. Will you ask the wrong people first? Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play. Joining us now is Steve Call. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the dean of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. His new book is Directorate S, The CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Steve, what is Directorate S? It's the covert action arm of uh, Pakistani intelligence. Uh, the main service is called Inter-Services Intelligence. The CIA worked with them during the 1980s to smuggle guns and money to the Afghan rebels who were fighting the Soviet occupation. After 2001, uh, as we tried to restore constitutional democracy to Afghanistan, ISI fostered the revival of the Taliban and ended up uh, creating the mess that we're in now. So it's a, it's a re- there's a reason you picked that theme yeah. for the rest of the book. Um, what's happening right now, you've seen some really terrible terrorist attacks over the past two weeks in Afghanistan. What's driving the violence right now? Well, it's been a rough couple of years, and there's, there are groups based in Pakistan, the Haqqani Network and others, that have continually carried out mass casualty attacks in Kabul in order to unsettle the government, make themselves felt. The Trump administration has changed policy toward Pakistan, suspended aid. There's some speculation in Afghanistan that maybe the terrible attacks we've seen recently are retaliation for that, a kind of signaling. But Is that wishful thinking or is that real? It's possible. I mean, ISI has a record of carrying out mass casualty attacks in order to send a signal uh, about where the war is going and and their interest in it. But it's also possible that these are just terrorist attacks of the type we've been seeing too often over the last year. Now, the president tweeted that he was going to be doing something about the aid you just mentioned. They ended up uh, suspending about $900 million, complaining Pakistan has given us nothing but lies and deceit. Does he have clearer eyes than past presidents who've been more careful in their language? Well, I can understand the frustration about Pakistan's conduct. But, of course, Pakistan has also been a partner in counterterrorism over the last 10 years and and has carried out arrests of important al-Qaeda leaders, uh, even while succoring the Taliban's revival. So it's a complicated picture. You know, there's a history of imposing sanctions on Pakistan to try to change its conduct. It's not a very happy one. It doesn't tend to work. And the reaction to the latest pressure has just been another kind of response of deep nationalism and defiance of the United States. The problem is our leverage in Pakistan is not what it used to be. Uh, It may never have been enough to change Pakistan's sense of where its interests lie in Afghanistan. But right now, 
Pakistan's most important ally by far is China, and China has had Pakistan's back through through many uh, episodes of this type before. And perhaps can offset whatever the U.S. may be pulling back? And then some, yeah. Um, so Presidents Bush, Obama, now Trump have all wanted to draw down and then realized they needed to recommit, they thought, to this war in Afghanistan. I was just there in December with the vice president who said we're going to stay until the last terrorist. Is this a forever war? It's looking like it. We keep doing the same things and expecting different results. Um, our war aims have been a muddle really since the fall of the Taliban. We haven't been able to align our resources and capabilities with the goals that we're trying to achieve. And so we, we, for example, we often say, the generals that go over and lead the war uh, will, will say, we can't find a military solution against the Taliban. I think it was David Petraeus who said, mm -hmm. you can't capture and kill your way out of an industrial strength insurgency. Well, the and president that, said this week, too early to talk. Yeah, too early, yeah. And so we keep uh, prioritizing military action, even as we acknowledge that it's not likely to end the war. So... Um, I, I, I do fear that the latest turn in policy is really not much of a departure from what the Bush administration and the Obama administration struggled with. Is it oversimplifying things to compare this to Vietnam? Not really. You know, that Ken Burns documentary that came out in the fall, I watched it after, you know, spending five, ten years on this book, and it really made me sad because there's so much repetition of uh, the pattern in Vietnam, uh, fighting for honor and and failing to let the facts guide where the war is really going. And, uh, of course, they're very different countries, very different times right. of history, and, and the, the American people have supported this war uh, more than they did in Vietnam, and so that's allowed governments, uh, one after another, to continue it. But mm -hmm. uh, there, there are parallels. Steve Call, thank you very much. The book is Directorate S. Well worth a read. Thank you for coming Thanks, in. Thanks, Margaret. That's it for us today. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests included South Carolina Republican Congressman Trey Gowdy. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene, 
There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.